welcome to the Supply Chain Careers Podcast, the only podcast for job seekers, professionals, and students who are focused on career-enhancing conversations and insights across all aspects of the supply chain discipline. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com. I'm your podcast co-host, Mike Ogle. And I'm your podcast co-host, Rodney Apple. In this episode of the Supply Chain Careers Podcast, we speak with Trey Anderson, currently with Office Depot, where he performs supply chain strategy and network design. He shares his passion for understanding the total picture of a supply chain and how his wide variety of companies and assignments have enabled that perspective. He values team members that bring a combination of expertise, curiosity, and the ability to learn and grow. He cautions against groupthink and encourages a focus on asking the tough questions regarding how to improve customer experience based on a deeper understanding of customer needs. His career advice includes the growing importance of nimbleness, plus stretching yourself to grow, and not letting perfection be the enemy of good. Trey, we're happy to have you with us today. Welcome to the Supply Chain Careers Podcast. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you inviting me and having me on today. We always like to start out with your career journey. How did you get started? We'd love to hear how you got into it and what were some of the greatest influences in those early stages of your career? So I think what's key to hit on is when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my career, something that really stuck with me is I didn't want to be a carburetor in a fuel injection world. I didn't want to do something that would be obsolete within the time that I was planning for my career. I was at Georgia Tech, and I actually started out in chemical engineering, and that was more of a case of you're, you're choosing to major in something that you're good at, that you, you had an affinity for, and you, you had good grades in. And, and I quickly figured out that I wasn't in love with chemical engineering. The, the thought of making ethylene glycol at 33% yield just wasn't something that really excited me. What I really got excited about was focusing on the total picture of the business. And so supply chain tended to be a, a very natural place to do that, meaning that I could focus on cost. I could focus on the human side. I could focus on geography. I could focus on growth. I could focus on functional failures and improving that. I think that's really what drove me to change my major to industrial engineering, but more importantly, to, to focus on supply chain. That's a nice way to say I got lucky. I figured it out early. I figured out something that I loved doing, had a real passion for, and have been able to do it my entire career. For me, it really starts with that total picture that supply chain allows. So it can be very technical. It can be very math-driven. If I have an expertise in anything, I would say it's discrete event optimization, linear programming. Uh, and while that's very important fundamental, and we could spend this entire podcast and, and then some talking about building models and, and what makes a great model, that's really just a very small part of what I do and what I've done because it's how all these pictures piece together. And as we talk more about leadership and, and experience, you'll see that theme. That was really important how I chose it. I was very lucky being at Georgia Tech, had some terrific professors, uh, very technical, 
education, but at the same time, I thought the, the School for Industrial Engineering was very grounded in, in the business side. And that's really where I, I think I excelled was taking the technical, but having real solutions. And was very lucky to have a, a lot of professors that really stressed that, or everything from relational databases to simulation to network analysis in terms of don't let a perfect solution get in the way of a good solution and what was implementable. Tell us about some of the key transitions that you had made throughout your career, including why you chose to make the moves and some of the lessons that you learned along the way. I love this question because it really hits to you know some of the philosophy of your career and, and how do you want to manage it? Not always thinking about everything in terms of here's each step in the progression, but really rounding out your skill set. I really focused heavily on being broad, on not siloing myself. I really wanted to be hands-on, work within the business, learn those lessons. So I was very purposeful in terms of going to work for industry. I went to work for Menlo Logistics right out of college, third-party logistics provider who's now part of XPO. And great hands-on experience working inside an operation. It was dynamic, going through a lot of, of contracts, changes in terms of what the, the core company was producing. And really allowed you to, to focus on some of that core industrial engineering experience. What I mean by that is what are we trying to accomplish versus what are we talking about accomplish? And that was a, a big theme that I spent a lot of time focusing on. At Home Depot, I would say just the absolute blessing of, of that time was being able to be on the, the engineering side and, and designing solutions. My last two years at Home Depot, I was in Chicago uh, in operations, and you're on the receiving end of those solutions that were, were being worked on. The beauty of that is you really developed a, a strong opinion on what worked and what, what didn't work and why. And sometimes the theoretical may be correct and on paper it should work, but is it really implementable? Were people able to be able to actually execute it and really making sure you're really putting in the human factors within the actual plan uh, that you, you developed? And so that became an underlying constraint and focus of my career was that no matter how good the, the solution was in theory, uh, and analytics, how was it going to be implemented by the humans? Did it have the right system? Did you have the right training? Time and time again, I saw some simple solutions executed very well that were very successful and some extremely good theoretical solutions that failed simply because of the implementation or maybe didn't take into account the timing or the training that was put into place. At the time I was at Home Depot, I uh, had an opportunity to move out of engineering into operations and, and took that role. It required a move from Atlanta to Chicago. Like, I'll never forget moving over Thanksgiving weekend with a four-week-old infant. I'm not sure I would do that today, but at the time, you just pack up and you do it. That really allowed me to get that operational hands-on experience. The example I always like to give is it taught me that you know, you're going to get that phone call on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, and you need to move 50 truckloads of product. And you figure out a way to do it, you get it done, and then you get a phone call on Tuesday complaining that it costs too much. And it, and it really helped me understand that you're going to have these scenarios that you're simply not going to make everybody happy or give them a solution. I'm not going to move freight for 90 cents a mile on that Saturday. It's not going to happen. So how do you actually you know, communicate? How do you execute? And how do you make people understand the implications of those decisions? And so that people are, are, are not surprised. I was at Home Depot. I got a phone call for a role at Shep Pallets. And what really attracted me to that role 
was the end-to-end control of the transportation. Everything from carrier contracts, actually writing the contract, writing the base contract that we were going to operate under. This was primarily truckload freight through the, the execution and awarding of lanes, committed capacity, all the way through the execution of that freight on a daily basis, all the way through the, the freight payment and audit process. And when you have that type of end-to-end control, once again, you really learn that a decision you make it in the contracting or the committed capacity or in the execution can give you an impact across that entire chain. And so it really helps you drive to make these holistic decisions really around how do you want to operate, getting away from some of the theoretical numbers. So often we'll chase a theoretical savings that it looks great on paper, but are you really going to achieve savings? It was also a great place to really learn about incremental improvements. Every week, I get better from week one to week two, week three, and then by you know week 12, week 16, you've really made substantial impact, but you never had that leapfrog improvement. It was just that steady, consistent improvement. It was also a great place to learn that nobody wants to be in last place. So if you publish the results and if you, here's the metrics we're going to chase and you can't do a hundred metrics, get it down to 20, 25 metrics. No one wants to be last in any category. You're not trying to strive to have everybody be at 99%. Just get people out of that 40 to 60, 70% performance range on any individual metric. You're going to see seismic improvements. At that point, I had a chance to, to go into consulting, and that was really one of those transformative moves where I was able to go from being on the client side to being on the service provider side. And I had an opportunity to go to work for operations associates, really doing consulting work. What was interesting is even though I'd never had done consulting work, all this work I've talked about it with Menlo and Home Depot and Shell, I was really doing consulting work. I was helping improve organizations. So it was a very easy transition. I was very lucky because of that role, I really was able to become an expert at linear programming. So taking operational work I had done, you're able to create very strong linear programs that have very strong operational fundamentals because you're not doing a theoretical and you're not building it based off pricing that that comes out budget-wise, but you actually operate that way in terms of how you have the loads built. Having that operational integrity, implementable integrity was a very strong way to focus. So that move was an easy move to make for me. All three of those moves, none of them were done for money. It was all about the experience and rounding out my career and that path, that growth path. From there, I was able to move into uh, real estate and spent eight years at Newmark, the company that was headquartered in Atlanta. But the home office was actually in New York. So I spent quite a bit of time in New York getting ingrained in the culture of Manhattan working with a a broad range of companies and and there was able to gain a lot of of international experience working South America, Europe, getting exposed to a lot of of different cultures. For instance, little things like knowing when you walk into a meeting in Brazil, you spend the first 10 minutes chit-chatting. They want to get to know you. They want to have that type of culture. Don't immediately walk in and start talking about business. If I walk into a meeting in Manhattan, you probably need to start talking about business in the first 30 seconds uh, because that's what the culture wants. And so learning those pieces, but getting that experience around supply chain consulting, some time within commercial real estate, looking at total accounts and and how, how that real estate really operates, being able to focus on helping clients, helping them understand What do they have tied up in their assets? How are they using their assets? And it really helped me really start formulating this 
concept of, of the total picture, the total cost within an organization, and how few companies actually focus on their total cost. They tend to focus on the cost that's associated with how they're, they're organized. From there, the Fortna opportunity was, once again, a, a phone call. And it was an opportunity to run a, a supply chain organization. Newmark was very broad, was able to do several opportunities over those eight years. Fortnite was extremely focused. You have a, a clear practice uh, in their business model. You have the supply chain strategy up front, moving all the way through, standing up buildings, the inside of the buildings, material handling solutions. Once again, these theories that, that we've talked about that I've hit on, in terms of the conceptual, but at the end of the day, when you turn on a machine in a building that's gears and oil, and it either works or it doesn't, you're achieving the cost savings you're planning on or you're not. You're getting the throughput that you were looking at or you're not. And helping companies through that journey, extremely satisfying role and definitely one of the most fun times of of my career in terms of working with a team, building a team, hiring, guiding, taking something within an organization and making it broader, more successful, leveraging it within that organization was a very exciting time. My last role was was leading the logistics and industrial practice at Cushman and Wakefield. Once again, that was a phone call. You have a lot of conversations, a lot of dialogue. And in terms of leading a, a very large organization, this was a thousand people, roughly half a billion dollars a year in, in revenue. And, and moving that forward from a, a, a transaction-based real estate model to, to developing more holistic solutions, helping clients through that journey and, and getting further upstream in the decision-making process. And Fortna was able to spend quite a bit of time in boardrooms and talking to C-suites, helping Cushman move further upstreams in the, those, those decisions versus being more on the, the tail end of those decisions. That's a very broad career perspective. You mentioned that shipper side where you're the brand or either OEM or, or reselling products. So you've migrated over to working with service providers and management consulting and real estate, strategic supply chain type services. Would love to hear your perspectives on the differences. Uh, maybe even speak to the pros and cons of working on that shipper side or the brand side as opposed to that service provider side. Great question. I, I really love this question because they're actually highly similar, but there, there are differences. Um, when you're working on the shipper side, you're working for a single company. Within that company, you have that set of objectives. If you're at Home Depot, wanting to be the, the best retailer within the market and continue to grow and, and being part of trying different things like home delivery was very new. E-commerce was just coming on board at the time, really working with different product groups as well. It's very focused. You have the operational side and you also have the growth side. My career was doing an analysis and seeing based off the logistics costs, uh, because the stores were of a certain scale, and it was absolutely a hockey stick. So you're ahead of the curve. You're identifying those challenges. That type of analysis is going to the board of directors and helping people understand the need to fundamentally start having a distribution infrastructure that supports more than just lumber and some import goods. It's that type of focus where you're doing that type of analysis, helping to to drive the company and, and the direction of the company. It tends to move slower. It's a much broader focus, but it tends to move slower. On both sides, you're still dealing with the suboptimization of silos, which is, is just extremely common, where people are working within their, their business unit, their P&L, and they're, they're behaving how they're incented. 
You'll see that on both the shipper side and the service provider side. The fundamental advantage of being on the service provider is when you're talking to a client, there's been a process that there needs to be a conversation. You're trying to improve something. You're trying to grow something. Uh, you're trying to, to fix functional failures in the operations, or you've got a throughput issue or, or cost issue. But there's a reason that you're having a conversation with that client. So it, from a change management standpoint, you're at least in that conference room. And somebody has decided why you should be in that room. Um, on the, the shipper side, you have that camaraderie of team. What's our goal? How are we trying to solve this? What are we trying to solve for? On the service provider side, it's an engagement. There's a, a defined letter. Here's what we're here to do. Are you really part of the team or they're executing a document? Understanding how you sit on different sides and, and, and how that interacts. It could be a, a 12-week engagement. It could be a three-year engagement. But it's still an engagement at some point that you're moving on. The shipper side, you'll get frustrated because you may not have the same team or the same resources allocated to you continuously. On the uh, service provider side, you'll have turnover with the shipper talent, and that will certainly create challenges uh, in and of itself. I think how you solve the problems are very similar. Maybe I'm saying this just because my background has had me on both sides for quite a bit of my career equally, but how you go about solving it is, is similar. On the shipper side, you're there to be that guide, that expert. You're there to have hard conversations. You're not getting invited to the Christmas party. So you're getting paid to have those hard conversations and then, and then to leave, which you can more effectively do than if you're at the shipper and, and, and working there. You know, Culturally, that can definitely be much more of a challenge, even though it shouldn't be. Your role is to say, let's do the analysis. Let's do the heavy lifting. On the shipper side, you, you tend not to be able to have that resident expertise of people who do this work continuously, whether it's WMS or whether it's material handling design or whether it's distribution design or, or transportation. They're not always doing a, a transportation bid or they're not always implementing a, a new WMS. On the service side, you are doing those things. You have people who are absolute experts in those pieces. But once again, you have to protect not to be siloed because they're always implementing a WMS. That's their skill set. Those pieces uh, work hand in hand together, but there's definitely relative advantages to each side. And I think it's really critical, uh, no matter which side of that equation you're working on, to be aware of the advantages and disadvantages of the other. That's a good perspective. Thank you for sharing that. It really comes down to the individual. And sometimes you really don't know until you give it a try. And I've seen plenty of people like you that have straddled both sides. It makes you a more well-rounded supply chain professional. I think it also helps you to better form relationships and gel when you've been on the other side, whether it's corporate to operations or whether it's shipper to service provider. Well-rounded is what you get when you do those things and make those strategic types of career moves. Completely agree, and, I, and I, I think that's why I've always focused on the experience versus uh, you know a specific linear career path. During this short break, we recognize that this podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com. When you were hiring team members, what did you look for? And it could have been hard skills, soft skills. And then what did you look, what did you do to bring out the best in the individuals and teams? I love that question simply because I think it's so key. So first, I, I never 
went out and had a, a list of 20 attributes that I wanted to hire and expected to find 20 attributes with this person and to find the perfect match. I really wanted to go out and hire the person that one, can they be part of the team? Two, are, are they passionate? Does this excite them? Or are they going to speak up and, and say when they disagree with something and, and help the team improve and teach others and, and bring that perspective? Do they want the overall team to improve and rise and understand that as, as the, the group does better, that's going to be good for them? I was always focusing on people that were experts and brought that expertise, whether it was a, a position that only had two or three years of experience or a position that that you get 20 years of experience, I always wanted to focus on you're coming in and you have an expertise that you're bringing. That expertise could be, hey, you're two years out of college. You know more about what's cutting edge in terms of best practices from that perspective, and you can really help teach the team. Or you've been doing this for, for 20 years, and you really understand the people, human behavior side, and how people are going to, to conduct and act. I, I always wanted to make sure bring them into a role where they can grow for them personally. It's 50% of what you know and 50% of what you're going to learn. And, and so you're growing. There was never an expectation that you were an expert from day one in that job because I found when you did hire people like that, they're going to get really bored really fast. There's always a few exceptions to what I just said, but for the, the types of roles that I've always led, you wanted people that were going to grow and, and were hungry to grow and wanted to learn and were intellectually curious. When they were looking at some non-billable practice building time, were really excited to get out there and, and learn and develop new tools. And I think that was critical. I, I think that's the key. I always wanted to try hire people that you could trust to work with. And then trust them, let them do their jobs, let them work with the clients and, and make sure you hire people different from you. These teams with a lot of group think I think are very dangerous because there's a lot of head nodding and people aren't pushing back. And I wanted a lot of pushback. I wanted people challenging everything from the technical side of how the problem was being solved to, to really debating how should you manage a client and work with that client to, to understand how to help them navigate this process but also at the same time, if they had a predetermined solution that they wanted you to rubber stamp, that was not what we were there for. We couldn't do that. The latter portion of your career, you've been truly focused in that client-facing advisory capacity. What types of traits does it take to be a strong advisor? And how do you go about building that trust with your client? I think it starts with you're there to be an advisor. And, and there's a reason you're in that room, meaning that they know they need some change. They know they need to update their, their network or they need to improve their systems or they need to look at their internal talent and, and make you know some different hires or, or to help bring in some outside talent to help integrate it in to the organization. I think it really starts with understanding what's the client goals and the client goals for the same exact business is going to vary depending on the ownership situation. Like if it's private equity owned, there's going to be an exit strategy. What is that exit strategy? What's the timing of that exit strategy? Uh, are you trying to improve your customer experience? Are you trying to improve your metrics like ship time? Are you focusing on cost? Uh, are you trying to improve your quality? And I think it starts fundamentally there and making sure you understand what they're trying to accomplish. Not, well, here's what best looks like and best is the same answer for everybody. So this is what you should strive for. You don't come in with a bunch of benchmarks and say, okay, well, you're, you're missing here, here, and here. And here's what you need to do to improve. But they could be very happy with their service level time. They might have from the time a customer clicks 
until you ship it. It could be three business days and they have no plans on changing that. They're very happy with it. At another company, that would be disastrous. So it's not your place to tell them, hey, you're terrible because you're at three days. They understand their customer and they know what space they want to play in. The same way in terms of the investment ownership side of the business. If they're in aggressive growth mode, you're going to be much less concerned about cost. You're going to be more concerned about revenue capture. How do you enable that? So you want to make sure you understand what their goals are. So from day one, you're there supporting them in their journey. You're not there trying to be the smartest person in the room. You need to balance that, though, by having very hard conversations early on and make sure you're being very direct in terms of what do they want to accomplish? What does good look like? What does best in class look like? And if there's a gap between where they are and what best in class looks like or from a cost standpoint, you want to have those conversations very early. It's not going to make you very popular. You're in a room with people that don't want to necessarily hear what you're saying. In some cases, you're in a room with people that don't want you in that room. You've been invited into that room for the work, but there are people in the room who weren't a part of the decision to invite you in or don't want your help, but they're very happy. That could be an, an outsource, insource decision where you're evaluating, do you want to insource a currently outsource scenario or, or vice versa? And they're very happy with the current state. You may be pushing against that from day one. But in terms of having those conversations with boards uh, of directors, you're, you're talking about a, a group of people who you know have disparate experiences and, and understanding uh, their views. I, I promise you, if you're ever talking to a board of directors that has someone who works for an airline on that board, they look at risk in a very different way than uh, we typically look at risk across other industries. You want to be aware of that. In some cases, risk is going to be extremely important. Uh, in some cases, you have a, a boardroom where, hey, I'll deal with it when the building burns down. I've seen both extremes, and, and you really need to understand those extremes. When I say hard conversations, what I really mean is do the analytics, do the math, do the work, do all the heavy lifting, and then have conversations around this is where you're wanting to go. This is the work required to get there. And this is what the time looks like. And sometimes that timing is, is longer than people think it is. Uh, they think they can get something done in nine months and, and you're telling them best in class is going to be 18. It's more going to be realistically 24 months to get there. Let's help create a plan in terms of a bridge to, to help you get there. Unfortunately, you, you also sometimes are dealing with the willingness to have those conversations and, and there's definitely pushback. You definitely want to have conversations where you're not surprising anybody, but you want to make sure that you're definitely talking to them, making sure they understand what good looks like and how to get there, what's achievable. Not like, okay, hey, I think we can knock this out in six months when you think in a very best case, we can knock it out in six months. That's how you build that trust. But also understand that if your goal is to be well-liked, that's not a role that's going to lend you a lot of happiness on the back end when you have great solutions that have been implemented and they see the improvements, but understand it's a long journey. I would say that's something that I excel at. And the more years I've done this, the more I'm, I'm grateful that I figured out that approach early on. What are some of the biggest influences that you're seeing have an influence on supply chain careers going forward? The number one thing that I would really stress on supply chain careers is going to be nimbleness. And what I mean is we're in a time right now that is so dynamic that if you take 2019 and, and what a good solution was in 2019 and what an expectation was for a solution in 2019, and compared to what it's going to be in 2022, we're seeing a seismic shift. What I mean by nimble is, is understanding, okay, what worked 
three years ago isn't going to work today. It could be the customer uh, expectations are different. It could be your cost expectations are different. We heard a lot of, of talk going into the, the pandemic about inventory. And, and what we fundamentally saw companies do is they very quickly start rationalizing their inventory and cutting out entire SKUs, entire product lines. So instead of this color, size, style proliferation, we, we saw the opposite. That's what I mean by nimbleness is like, here's what we're executing. We're now changing what our definitions are, what good is, and how do we want to accomplish it? So I would really stress the ability to, to understand those views and be able to react to them. Ask the right questions within a supply chain career. So it's going to be important because if you go back and look at a whole list of who's who's within the supply chain world with companies, you're going to see, you know, all of them have had to make some fairly seismic shifts recently and are going to continue to make those shifts. That's critical. Matching those solutions to the, the operational and aspirational needs is going to be critical to the supply chain careers. One of the things I always like to talk about is the Mandela effect in supply chain. And what I mean by that is memories are incorrect. They're fallible. People will have a, a solution that they used at one company. It could be a material handling solution. It could be a system, software system. And, and they just assume it's going to work in the next solution. Very often it doesn't because even though you might have a similar product type, you might have a different order profile, a different customer demand, a different service expectation. You really have to make sure you're taking each situation as an individual situation and then matching it to the solution to what you actually need. That also balanced with what do I think three, five, ten years looks like? Because I don't want to get locked into a solution that works today, but I'm setting myself up for failure. And what I mean by that is I might have a wholesale model currently, but what if I want to go to a more consumer direct model? We've seen numerous companies do that over the last two years where they've actually stopped serving some of their wholesale customers. They've gone to more consumer direct model. And for instance, the distribution solution for that is going to be an extremely different solution. Uh, the warehouse that supports shipping cases and pallets is not set up to support shipping eaches. Those types of solutions are, are really important. The other side is really continue to, to stretch. I think in supply chain, if you're not really starting to think heavily about data analytics, machine learning, you're going to get left behind. That's another area that's going to continue to grow. Um, you certainly don't have to be you know, a data scientist, but understanding the impact of the decisions, how to tie into it, how to leverage it, the questions to ask, what you're looking for is, is going to be critical because with supply chain, we're, we've seen this fundamental shift where people have taken supply chain in a lot of organizations where it's something like, hey, if it's working and, and whatever my service level is, if my service level is everything ships within two days of the order, as long as it's working, I'm happy. And as long as the cost reflects what's on my P&L, no surprises, I'm happy. And people are, are shifting away from that and wanting supply chain to become more of a competitive advantage, whether it's for growing market share, for client satisfaction, or, or for cost. And so what you know used to be acceptable at 3.9% on the P&L if you actually benchmark it, maybe you should be at 2.5. Why do you go capture that extra savings? People are much more focused there in, in terms of driving there on the supply chain side. And so, you know, helping companies turn this into a competitive advantage, I think it's, it's critical. Uh, and that's why that broad skill set really plays so well within the supply chain space. Could you share a key leadership challenge that you've faced in your career and I'm sure you face many from managing, you know, small teams to very large teams. 
how you've dealt with that challenge and then how that helped you grow as an overall leader. Since we've talked a little bit about the shipper and the service provider perspective, I'll, I'll give you know two examples that I think speak to it. On the service provider side, I've had projects where you know, over the course of a year, you've had four leadership changes. Literally every three to four months, uh, a new person's on the project and there's frustration on the project. There's one example that I'm thinking of. The company actually had had its entire C-suite change. And so there was no legacy innate knowledge in the organization. Everybody had come in from the outside. And as we talked about earlier, lots of decisions have been made. None of those decisions were wrong, but they were all focused at driving certain goals that with a new C-suite now had a, a different opinion and different objectives. So within this 12-month period, you had four different leadership teams came in. And they really had a different focus, different objectives. And the only way you navigate through that type of environment is to really focus on the business case. What are the, what's the data telling you? What are the analytics telling you? And, and sticking to that because you're going to deal with people that are frustrated, people that have different objectives, people that are being given different directives. The way you navigate that type of engagement and ensure that the client's being served and the client has the right support and is getting the right information to make good decisions, and that you can stay engaged. Being right and no longer being engaged is a failure. Staying engaged because you're telling people what you want to hear is a failure. So really navigating that is being in that in-between space of being liked, respected, but being that solid guide for the client where you're really helping them make good decisions and having conversations with them that they necessarily don't want to hear, but most importantly need to hear. And doing it in a way that as, as people come in and maybe have different objectives than what's best for the business, you're still going to be able to navigate that. And, and that's a lesson that I continue to learn through my career. And as an executive leader has really been reinforced that there is no alternative. On the shipper side, I've dealt with what everybody's had to deal with, budget cuts and, and layoffs and leading a team through that. That's a painful process with a significant human impact. Fundamentally, it's the same exact underlying tenet of, of having very direct, honest conversations with people, walking through, here's what the business demands are, here's why we're having to make these cuts, here's why you're here, how are we going to work through this, how are we going to continue to deliver great quality work. Once again, having that straightforward, difficult conversation, not telling people what they want to hear, telling people what you know the situation is. And then telling people, what are we doing next and how are we going to move forward, I think is really critical. And also giving time for people to hurt. Those processes are painful. And as a leader, recognizing that, you know, this is a difficult time. There is no positive answer that everybody is going to be happy out of this. But here's how we're going to move forward and here's how we're going to build from this. Having those hard conversations early, making sure you're telling people, what they don't want to hear, but doing it in a way that's very empathetic to help them understand how this is part of a, a larger goal and how we're moving forward. And always making sure that you have the hard work analysis that you've done and that's what's guiding you. And then sticking to that plan, even on the days that you're getting a lot of pressure not to. We'd like to hear some examples of some of the best career advice that you've received along the way. And you know, if you have a couple of your own that you'd like to share, whether they're mid-career or if they're getting started in their supply chain career. Whether you're getting started or whether you're mid-career, supply chain is a great place to focus on your career. 
the reason why is I've been lucky enough to, to be doing this for over 25 years, but it really allows you to perform multiple roles within an organization under the umbrella of supply chain. You have a, a financial accounting focus, audit. You're really involved in those pieces of the organization. You have the, the operational focus in terms of what are my goals? And we talked a lot about cost and service and expectations. You know, we haven't talked a lot about manufacturing, but looking into the manufacturing operation and optimizing the manufacturing operation to minimize costs, but also understanding the downstream impact of those decisions and maybe making some decisions in manufacturing that will have an incremental cost, but actually have a net lower cost for the entire operation. Now, the ability to impact that type of broad decision-making is one of the great things about supply chain. The ability to have that broad view and to help individuals and organizations that have that siloed business unit view where I'm optimizing my P&L that I'm incented off of to help really understand those total decisions across the organization, whether it be qualitative or quantitative, to make better decisions for the, the whole organization is something that supply chain people really can focus on and impact. And that's something that C-suites and board of directors get very excited about. In terms of some of my own advice, some things that were true early in my career or just as true today is, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So many people get caught up in, in the word optimal. What we want is incremental improvement. Optimal is goal. Incremental is something that we can do today. 80% is an ideal, but it's a whole lot better than 60%. And we want to get to 95. But if we can get from 60 to 80, that's really going to give us the, the roadmap to, to improve a metric to 95%. Focus on that incremental improvement. Those incremental improvements add up to the big improvements. So often we're looking for that one change that's going to get us there. It doesn't work that way. It's a lot of small incremental improvements that get us there. Human capital is the most important capital. Uh, whether you're, you're software, hardware, whatever business you're in, it, it's about your people. The companies that understand that and, and live that value daily are, are the successful organizations. The one that gets away from that aren't long for the world in terms of how they operate because the, their people just aren't going to continue to support them and they're going to lose those people. One that I could really stress always is that the Grim Reaper is going to get paid. Meaning you can skip out on work, say like you're doing some testing uh, on a new WMS or you're doing testing on a new material handling system or you're doing testing on a new manufacturing line. And you're like, hey, let's just get this up and running. We're under a lot of pressure. Let's get this running. The number of times I've seen companies that have to stop, shut down after they've gone live because they didn't do the hard work up front. It's a long list. So do that work up front because you're going to do that work either on the front end or the back end. It's a whole lot easier and more effective on the front end uh, than the back end when you've already gone live and you've got disappointed customers and you've set expectations that you can't deliver on. Do the work in the correct order because you're never going to skip those steps. You're going to have to do them. Or you're just going to do them out of sequence with a lot more pain. And then finally, your integrity really has no short-term price. As difficult as it is sometimes, you're getting a lot of pressure when you have somebody that wants you to make a different decision or, or has a predetermined outcome, don't give in to that. As hard as it is to, to stick to your guns, always stick to your guns. I've never regretted it. And always in the long term, the number of clients that maybe were unhappy or struggling with something short term, uh, long term, once they saw how great the project turned out or the improvements that they realized, how joyful they are that we did it, and the benefit they got from it is enormous. So always have that long-term view, and you will always have the right decisions guiding you. Trey, thank you so much for the time you spent with us today. 
We very much enjoyed this conversation and we appreciate you sharing your insights on supply chain careers. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on. This was a, a great conversation and appreciate the opportunity to share some insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Supply Chain Careers podcast. Be sure to listen to other episodes and sign up to be notified when future episodes are released as we continue to interview industry-leading supply chain experts. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com.